shots of a horror film. One of us should get murdered soon. And I'm the fattest, so it'll probably be me. <laughs> the odds aren't in your favour. No, they're not, they're not. The only way I escape is if there was a black guy, then he'd get done first. But otherwise it's me. <laughs> Gary Delaney, thank you for coming. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> uh, we're, it's a drunken Saturday night in Cardiff. Uh, yes, and you're here at the Glee at the Glee Club. Yes, yes. doing your your fierce one-liners <laughs> <laughs> to a load of hen nights. Yeah, and it's, it, well, it's a Saturday night, so it, it will be a well-run Saturday night in that it's at the Glee, but it's still a Saturday night. Yeah, but generally it's pretty well behaved, and they're there to listen to the comedy because anyone who's too naughty will get thrown out. But so they're quite good at they're quite good at policing here, are they? Uh, yeah, I, I would say out of most out of the British clubs, they're, they're some of the best at policing. Mm. I mean, you know no one's perfect at it because if you're really if you're really strict about who you let in you don't make any money mm, mm. <laughs> but they're, they're about as good as it gets yes absolutely I suppose it is the balance isn't it between have you seen comedy sort of turn into this night out um, beforehand was it more of a they're coming here to listen to the comedy has that changed it has a little um, when I first started seeing comedy in the early 90s when I was a student or like when I did sort of the sound desk at the chocolate clubs and we're talking like 94, 95 I would say that audiences generally were um, slightly more bookish and willing to give a bit more attention a bit more leeway and let the acts go off on one and, and I certainly have worked with acts recently who I remember working who I remember working with seeing in those days in the 90s who might be rather slower paced and more Unusual, who would rock it in an audience? And one specific act, you know, I worked with him in uh, about '95, and, and he just smashed, smashed it, and nailed it, and encored it. And then I worked with him a couple of times a few years ago, and he got booed off both times. Mm. And, and the change in that was, I mean, partly there was the clubs, but mostly it was, yeah, audience over time. And I think um, um, generally, as something attracts a mass, more of a mass market. You're going to get more idiots. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. inevitable. I think. Mm. But also, I think you know when um, when most clubs started marketing themselves on the basis of the disco afterwards and whatnot, that you know, wasn't ideal. Mm. But I, know, mm. I know that's the nature of the beast. But I mean, is there a disco afterwards? Is this how it how it works at the Glee? Um, is that I don't think there is at the Glee. Okay. No, the Glee is mm. much more. I'm not going to name names or diss people I work for. No, but there, of are, there are other clubs that are more about. Oh, absolutely. Disco. I think we all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think we all know. Um, but you haven't. You haven't struggled as much because obviously the nature of your comedy is one-liners and... Yes, I, I suit the short attention span modern society. <laughs> I was chatting with someone about this the other day. I think um, one-liners go in and out of fashion like, like all other types of comedy do and they're relatively in fashion at the moment. But I think as well as that sort of cyclical shift, there is a secular shift and I think one-liners are more popular than they used to be because they do work better in an environment where the audience maybe doesn't have greatest attention span ever or you know at a, a roundy club or at a festival um, and they're good for TV as well because they're easy to edit mm. Mm. you know yeah yeah. there's always a demand for them yeah, so. but uh, I heard somebody said that this whole um, this whole construct of things going in and out of fashion yeah. is actually not as true as people think it is that there's always really? yeah that there are always people who are doing one liners there's always people doing and really it's a construct. I know what they mean. Sometimes <clears throat> the press can... If three people do a thing, that's enough for the press to say that's a trend. Yeah. Right? When those, well, there's always been three people doing that thing, whatever it is. However, I would still say that 
when did Milton and Tim start? What was that, mid-90s? I think before I they came along, I don't know of anyone in the UK who was doing one-liners before mm. them. Mm. I think it kind of did go out of, sort of swept out of vogue when the old mainstream guys went out of fashion. It kind of was chucked out with the bathwater and they bought it back. Okay. Um, it may just be that I wasn't around in those days and I, there's guys I just don't know of, but I can't immediately think of any. Mm. Might be wrong. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, these things do get overstated by the media because they will make a story out of anything, but there's... There's some truth in it. Yes, and uh, I suppose typically now because of the Twitter um, culture, that I mean it isn't just Twitter. I think it has extended into other things as well. That it's a very short attention span and snappy, yes, yes. bite-sized sort of comedy. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's a two-edged. I mean that sort of overall that sort of shift in society kind of favours what I do, but in some ways it's you know destructive as well. In that you know. Uh, Twitter and stuff obviously means that you know people are broadcasting your jokes mm. before you know you're, people are half the answers and your bloody jokes yeah. if someone's put them on Twitter or Facebook or a text or whatever. Yeah, and that didn't used to happen. People didn't used to see your jokes until you did them on telly. Mm. And play, uh, plagiarism is much easier. So you just cut and paste. Yeah, that used to, what used to stop it was that people had to remember and tell jokes, and most people just didn't have that skill. So that was why people could do the same set for twenty years. But once it became the case of piece that people could just once one person's posted it somewhere, just cut and paste or just you know. Mm. Then it's, yeah. Do you notice a lot of your stuff being lifted by no. comics or not comic? Comics generally, the circuit is relatively self-policing. Mm. No, it's just it's just um, you know just audiences or something like things you can't really get away so much with. Um, you know, you kind of know as a comic if you do something on proper telly like network telly, you probably have to drop that bit of material. Mm. Although some people say you only have to drop it for a bit, that's debatable depending on you know. But the general rule kind of used to be. If it was a slower profile program, you'd think, well, it's only on cable, I'll, I'll take their money and I'll carry on doing that bit and no one will notice, right? <laughs> yeah. <coughs> and most people would think they'd get away with it, and that's true, except um, if you do a little set on cable thinking it's fine, only 100,000 people are going to watch that, I don't care. Mm. But one of those 100,000 people, oh, it's brilliant, I'll put all those on Facebook the next day, then the, the effect is disproportionate yeah. to the viewing figures and the <laughs> amount of cash you might have received. <laughs> I mean, is it ruined when, when uh, uh, someone's seen, a, uh, well, heard a one-liner before, if someone sees that it's useless it's, it's, to you? It's not it? useless, but it's lessened. It will never get the same response again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because most people in an audience will just assume that, like them, you saw that joke on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Mm. You know? mm. so, so you've had to up your game if you had to I make to sure... faster, but I still... Um, I've still got loads of <laughs> loads of stuff I, on my set that I'll be doing tonight that I've I've done before or it's gone on to me or it's gone on things or yeah, yeah so no I, you, know, you can muck it up as much as you can but I'm not um, industrious enough to outrun the internet I don't think anybody can mm, mm. and you still have you know uh, comics talk about having having that piece that works you you, you have a, a set few that that, that are work and uh, crowd pleasers yeah, and absolutely. yeah. Um, there's a sort of, I mean, a set is like um, a football team, I think, in that a joke only gets in when it's better than one of the existing players. So a joke has to kind of break into your 20 and retire one of the old guys. Mm. But that does mean that you have some jokes in your set that have been there for years because they just still work and other ones fade away and get, get sort of dropped and replaced. Mm. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, mm. that's how I see it. But there's always, you always have to go for a mix. You go for a mix between older and newer, you go for a mix between. Uh, more you know, crowd pleasing stuff and, and 
lots of crowd pleasy stuff, you know. So, you know, I, and you have to try and find a balance you're happy with. When I first started doing big clubs, I really tried to be quite pure about it. And really, you know, I was, I was quite up my own ass as an open spot, quite frankly. <laughs> and then when I got into some of these big clubs, I would go and die on my hole. <laughs> and I soon learned a few lessons. And then, uh, so, and I'd, so you reach compromise. So I'd be like, right, okay, I'm in Gongas, but I will do my, I will do my Israeli occupier joke. And I'm also going to make sure I do it. The ginger jokes or something, so I don't just get booed off. Mm, so you, so it's that. you find you find balances. You can, you know, I think you have to find a way to do what you want to do, but also to get it over. You can you can live with yourself still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I suppose that there, there might be a mindset where you, you've done a, a set and it goes really well, but you feel thoroughly dissatisfied because you you haven't done anything that you wanted to say. It can happen, but it, it's kind of your fault when that happens. Um, but yeah, sometimes you get you go to a really rough gig and you right, like, there's, there's things I can do to get through this gig and make sure I you know, do well and do my time and get mm. paid. But you know, always happy with some of the things you do. But if that's too often, you're probably making too many compromises. Mm. Um, mm. You know. But it's yeah, it's, it's a possibility, and you you, you want to be doing what you want to be doing. So, yeah, yeah, you, you have to, everyone has to start off and put themselves somewhere on that sort of spectrum of, of hacky to artist and try to find a little point where you can find an acceptable compromise and make a living and not, mm. you know, <laughs> I mean, without coming off stage going, oh, what was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're doing these, these um, sets in comedy clubs, is that actually helpful for, like, your, your, your show that's coming up, like Edinburgh? Is that helpful in preparing you for that or is it a completely different beast when you get to Edinburgh? Overall, it is helpful. Um, there are many things that you will put into an Edinburgh show that just won't work in clubs. Mm. Well, certainly not in a big weekend club. Maybe in one of the slightly sort of quieter, more erudite Sunday night clubs. Mm. So just because something won't work in a club 20 doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place in an Edinburgh show. However, equally, you can use that excuse to put a load of dross into a show. Yeah. You know, going, yeah. well, oh, it's not, it'll, it'll be good in Edinburgh, it's not in Edinburgh. Sometimes, you know, it may just be that it is slightly too clever for a clubby crowd or demands too much mm. attention, mm. or it might just be that it's not as good as you think it is. <laughs> um, now, again, you know, so you, you have to not try and use that as an excuse. I mean, I, I'm putting together my Edinburgh show now, and I, I did my first preview last week, and I was really, I st- just started off with this big pile of jokes, and I was really pleased to see that a lot of the stuff that hadn't necessarily made it into my club set was working in a preview, and hopefully will be in my Edinburgh show and make up a big chunk of it but also you've got to be wary of I mean I know that there was a lot of stuff in my last Edinburgh show that wasn't from my club set and I put it in and I was like this stuff zings so after Edinburgh I was like right now I'm going to get out and just do what's basically a cut down version of my Edinburgh show in clubs uh huh didn't work really yeah that experiment lasted about a week (laughs) and then I had to go through and cut out a lot of that stuff um, uh, because some of it wasn't right for clubs and some of it in all honesty, probably just wasn't as strong as I thought it was. Mm. So, so there, there is material that, that plays well in Edinburgh but isn't actually that yeah, strong? There certainly is, absolutely. But there is also the fact that you can use the slower pace of an Edinburgh show as an excuse to get away with stuff. And you have to not, not indulge yourself like that too much. <laughs> there is always a value to doing any, you know, any gig, or certainly a gig like this, a proper uh, gig like the Glee, you can put stuff in. I've, I've got a, you know, I always have in my bag a little short list of... Um, the jokes that have worked the best at my last couple of new material nights and I'll go through and whittle it down to like the best half a dozen and I'll be trying to drop them in at any gig that's good and, and find a place to put it in and tweak it and whatnot. 
um, and then and then see if it works. So I know that tonight I've only got one. I've got one joke. I rewrote it a little bit this afternoon. It's been kind of working. I think I've got the right place for it. Last over the last couple of nights, I got another joke to really bed in and work well that I was unsure about, but now it's working. So I'm going to try and do the same with this one. I think I've got the right wording. I think I've got the right place. I'll drop it in and, and see what works. Mm. Um, so that's and, and that. You know, and if that joke works, and it will stay in my set, and it will end up in the Edinburgh show, and I'm doing that at the Glee on the Saturday night. Mm. Mm. But equally often, you try that, and you come away going, "Yeah, <laughs> bye bye, little joke." And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you should always do it. I think I think every gig, there's always an excuse not to do new material, right? And if you listen to the comics chatting backstage, and you know, we're always finding excuses not to do new stuff. And me and me and Sars were talking about the other night, you know, the audience just going, "Oh, this, this is what." But, um, you know, this could be quite hard and maybe I shouldn't do all the new stuff there's always a reason not to do it but you should do new stuff mm. I mean many moons ago after I'd first left my job and I had a working 20 I, I kind of got a bit lazy I thought right I've got this I've got 20 that works yeah yeah hey ho I'm in charge and, and I would work at that guy at that time I was still working with guys like sort of you know um, like Mark Watson and Rob Gilbert you know who were still at, at, for a brief while at the same level as me and then they were always putting in new stuff and always testing stuff and I'd be like what are you doing, you idiots? <laughs> Don't you realise this is we're on, you know, we're on eighty pound each year on a Friday night for Mr. Comedy Chops, and you're putting in a new bit. Oh, you're crazy! I'm going to stick with all this tried and tested. Look at those things; <laughs> they'll never get anywhere. And <laughs> and obviously they were right. <laughs> I was wrong. Is that it, was a very clear lesson <laughs> of those days. Is it always going to be important to you that you can play a club like the Glee, or? Do you think you'll get to a point one day where you you might, you know, not have those skills anymore because you're doing something else? Um, there are clubs that I might choose not to play anymore if I had mm-hmm. you know, sufficient employment alternatives. The Glee wouldn't be one of them. I, I, yeah, I think there is a virtue to being able to play any room. I say any room, that's an exaggeration. But I think it's good for your skill set as a comic to be able to play the majority of rooms that you come across. Um, there will still be some that you can't do, but if you pigeon yourself as somebody who can only play arty venues or can only play bear pits, I think that is a loss to your comedy. And I think there's a real virtue um, to being able to try and do both, or at least as much as you can of both. And I think you kind of get two camps of, of comics, and both, to a degree, can be a little bit snobby about, oh, I only do this sort of gig, I only do that sort of gig. And there is a virtue to going, well, how flexible can I make myself how much in the middle ground can I get that I can do you know if I ever do a double up that is um, a big stag some hens club and then nip up to the art centre up the road for a double I feel really pleased with myself mm. you know mm. Mm. that you've got both of those skill sets yeah well, I, say, I have yeah I wouldn't necessarily I mean, some, yeah, mm. to be honest I being aware of my own week I'm probably more likely to come a cropper in an art centre than I am in a, in a Friday night jongles <laughs> is you know, so it's but yes it's you know I, I, can, I can have a pretty good stab at both mm. I mean is there a slightly snidey thing towards um, one liners does uh, the art centre crowd kind of think oh. yes there mm-hmm. is a little bit um, yes I think that's undeniably true some people who just think they're too middle class and well educated for one liners and will just like, you know think set up on a punchline <laughs> my god who does he think he is <laughs> um, so yes I, I you know I, I certainly find that, that I get you know resistance in some places and don't you know go that well but I try, again I try to I you know I have a tendency not to do that many of those gigs because you know because I, I find them harder but you know but I still do some but the right approach would be to try and do more and think well maybe it's because I've you know let myself get a bit out of practice at those gigs I used to be better at the RTA gigs than the radio gigs now I'm better at the radio gigs than the RTA gigs because I've done more of them mm. um so there, there are, you know, when I moan about a crowd, it's usually because it is a load of 
touting middle class Guardian readers, usually somewhere in the south of England. Um, but yeah, they're still they're, they're a really important audience, and they're quite close to an Edinburgh audience, so you've still got to be able to play mm. it. Mm. And, and your audience is is that more of the core of your audience who come to see you? My audience are dweebs, <laughs> basically. Um, I, I, I did a really nice little preview in Leicester on Tuesday, and I looked out at the audience, and they were mostly. Um, they, I, I, it was like looking into 75 mirrors, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> they, you know, they may not all have been the same, you know, the same gender or the same, the same age or the same colour, but they were all broadly of a type. And that type is socially awkward. Uh, that type is not necessarily overly concerned about their appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially the same. Yeah, none of them are fit to babysit. That's, that, that's, that's probably how I describe my audience. That's the general rule. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But you have enough of those <coughs> sorts of people to... I mean, you can tour, so... Um, I'm doing my first tour at the minute. It's quite a little one, because mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to... I think some people in recent years have made the mistake of jumping straight in with a big tour, which I think is a bit silly. So my first tour is is quite, is not that many venues, and they're all quite small. Modest. Um, yeah, but that's why I'm saying first tour, because hopefully, um, you know, when that, that's like May and June, hopefully by the end of that, that will have gone all right. And then I do Edinburgh, and then I would hope to do a second bigger tour off the back of that. Mm. But I'm not going to jump straight in yeah. with a big tour because I've watched colleagues of mine do that in recent years and looked and thought, ooh, that hasn't worked out as you hoped. And I think it is difficult. I mean, it could be quite easy for you to jump into that because you've got such a following online, I guess. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily translate yeah. into. I can't look at that and go, oh, that means I can do a tour of three, four hundred seaters. No, it's, it's the same with like the nods and sods of telly, a couple of little things. But it's not the case now that you do two or three telly appearances and you go, oh, I'm a big household name, I can do a huge tour. You have to do um, a kind of a critical mass of telly to get that behind you. You know, a couple of monthly weeks or a one-night stand isn't going to have an immediate overnight massive effect on you. It will raise your profile, it will get you an audience, you'll be able to do a little tour, it will push you up bills, but it's not going to turn you into a... The household name. There's so much more telly nowadays that a couple of good TV appearances doesn't let your career take off in the way that it wants did. Mm. Mm. But you probably see a lot of your material used on the big panel shows because you do a fair amount of writing. Is there? Is there? I mean, is there a, a level of bitterness? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. No, no. You're happy. I think you, when you. Um, um, and on heart and honesty, writing is just work. Um, I look upon writing jobs as kind of the same way that I used to when I organised conferences. Really, I'll go in, I'll do my work, I take my money, and I go home. Um, you know, writing stand up for myself and writing jokes for myself, I love, and it's wonderful. And um, if I never earned another penny doing stand up, I would still gig. I wouldn't necessarily gig every night of the week, I wouldn't necessarily gig everywhere, but I would still do gigs. I'd still do new material and I'd like try stuff out just for the love of it. I wouldn't still write for TV programs for the love of it. <laughs> that's not to say I don't enjoy it, mm-hmm. but that's, that's work. And you, I think when you start off doing writing jobs, you, um, you have to, to a degree, learn to let go of what you write. You go, once, you, once you've written it and it's not yours anymore. You've sold it and it's, that's gone. Don't get too hung up on it because you're never going to agree with they're never going to use what you think are the best jokes. They're probably not going to use them the way you want them to. They're never ever going to be happy with it. <laughs> and it's not your choice. You've sold it. And that's that. You know, you, you, know, you have your own... When you, when you do it yourself, you have your say over everything. So that's enough to say. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers. And enjoy your gig. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to it. And... Um, 
yeah, and, uh, and now I've committed myself in public to trying that new bit, and I work out this happening, I have to do it. Or I will look so... But I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. So if I do drop it, nobody will know. I'll just pretend, oh, it was that bit about the Israeli occupier that I wrote this afternoon in 2001. <laughs> You're being liberal with the truth. It's fine. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.